surprise of the whole Bible, it's that thing that we mentioned last week, the historical redemptive narrative, all right? Now, I, I'm not trying to be all academic right? But I, I want you to know what that is because the historical redemptive narrative is a big flashy word for the gospel story that the whole Bible points to. And I want you to open up your Bible, and when you do, I want you to be able to see and understand what you're reading and how it fits and what God is doing, all right? The historical redemptive narrator, n- narrative is the telling and the retelling and the retelling of the gospel dramatized over and over and over again in people's real-life stories here in the Bible. And you can go back through church history for 2,000 years, and you can see reversal after reversal. Things that we didn't see coming, but things that we needed to show up, and God comes through. God shows that he had a plan all along. Impossible ones that all of God's people were praying for and that none of God's people could see coming. All right? What mankind has needed since Genesis chapter 3 we, we need the ultimate reversal to take place. Adam and Eve sinned against God. All right, let's take us back to Sunday school for a second. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They mistrusted God. They believed in themselves. They took hold of pride. They questioned God's goodness, and they rejected God's command for them, and they decided to do what was good in their own eyes. That's the heart. That's the root. That's the bottom line of sin, is to do what is right and good in my own eyes. It's what we call the fall. And the consequence of the fall is that sin enters into the entire creation. All of the universe, all right, all of the universe through Adam and Eve, sin poisons and contaminates and corrupts everything. With sin comes pain (coughs) and suffering and trauma and misunderstanding and confusion and chaos and ultimately death. We need a turnaround. Everyone and everything is going to suffer and die because of sin. That's the guarantee. It's just, it's an un, unreversible, irrevocable law. There's nothing Adam nor Eve nor anyone else can do to stop this. Sinners can't stop sin because sin is the sinner's nature. And if you ever had that moment where you just felt trapped by who you are, I want to turn over a new leaf, I want to have a change, I need a new discipline, I need a new habit for some reason, here I am back at square one, here I am right back around the entire clock face, right back in this cycle. How do I, how do I get out of this? But there's nothing a sinner can do to stop sin since the sinner's nature is sin. So this is, this is a, a sort of toothpaste that Adam and Eve can't put back in the tube. But the only solution to the problem is to somehow reverse sin, to reverse death, to reverse the corruption, to reverse the offense against God. Yes, to reverse ultimately death. This is the story of the whole Bible, and it's dramatized and taught over and over and over again. When you pick up your Bible, don't see individual, simple Bible stories with a hero here and a hero there, and here's a boring book of the Bible full of laws that I'm going to skip over because that's boring, and I'm going to skip over the parts where there's a lot of talky-talk, right? The whole Bible, whether it's a letter or a song or a proverb or a narrative, everything, it's all teaching and putting on display and dramatizing the gospel the historical redemptive narrative of what God is doing. The darkness and damning, hopeless circumstances that people, God's people find themselves in over and over again. We face impossible odds and powerful enemies. Instead of horses, God's people end up on donkeys. Instead of swords, God's people end up with slings. When, they, when we have to breach the walls of a heavy and fortified city, instead of 
catapults and siege engines, what do we get? God says, no, you have to use a marching band to bring those walls down. God tells them that instead of thousands of soldiers in their army, they only get 300. And when they need to be free from slavery, instead of sending a great and mighty warrior, God sends an 80-year-old shepherd. And over and over again in God's sovereign providence, God grants bewildering, unexpected, incredible reversals because that's what he's in the business of doing. That's what we see today in Esther chapter 6. We can call this chapter God's Great Persian Reversal, part one. Next week is going to be part two, all right? And God's not going to perform this reversal with supernatural, miraculous signs and wonders. That's not how he's going to do it. That's not how he's been working in the story. No, God's going to show that he's been perfectly aligning, he's been perfectly coordinating, sovereignly appointing the hearts and minds of human beings who are doing what they want to do along with their choices and actions, and he's using all of that to perform this reversal, his providential plan, which is why we've subtitled this whole sermon series. As we look at the book of Esther, this is, in this book, we just want to see how the miraculous God meets us in the mundane, the normal, the boring, the unspectacular. Let's take a look at Esther chapter 6 then. On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. Now, to, to catch you up briefly, right, in this book of the Bible, it's named for a Jewish woman living in exile in the land of Persia, all right? She was raised by her older cousin Mordecai. She was selected to be the, by the king to become his wife and to be crowned queen. Now, a few years later, the king has promoted a prideful and wicked, ambitious man named Haman to become his right-hand man. He's now the vice president. Everyone's supposed to honor Haman and bow before him, and Esther's cousin, who's like her surrogate dad, has refused to bow. This has wounded Haman's pride. He's arrogant. He's decided to become Persian Hitler. He gets the king to agree to give him a Jewish holocaust to kill up to possibly 15 million people throughout the kingdom, all Jews, all because of Mordecai. And so when Mordecai and the Jews find out, Mordecai goes to Esther, says, you're the queen, you've got to go talk to the king, ask him to reverse this law or do something about it, okay? You've got to do something. Esther has risked her life, we saw this last week, she has risked her life to come into the king's presence uninvited, and she finds favor with him once again, right? Now, she doesn't make her big ask, she invites the king and Haman to a dinner that evening, and they go. And she still doesn't make her ask. She says, I'm going to invite you to another dinner tomorrow, and then I'll give you my big ask, what I need, what I'm looking for. And by the way, that timing matters. Whether she, whether she knew what she was doing, whether she got to the first dinner and then chickened out and go, no, 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 let me try it. Let me, we'll ha well, I'm going to put it off tomorrow. I, I need to work on my pitch. Right? We don't know why she said two dinners and delayed her ask for the next night. But that's important. All right. Haman went home. He's bragged to his wife and his kids and his friends. Life is so good right now. It's all going great until, do you guys remember Esther chapter 2? It was weeks back when Mordecai discovered that two of the king's servants were planning to kill him. Remember that? That's just been read. It was, it was recorded in the book. Chapter 2 said it was written down in the book. You remember that he reported the information. The king was saved. And remember how nothing happened? Nothing happened. 
No thanks, no pat on the back, no attaboy, not even a Chick-fil-A gift card, okay? Do you remember how unfair that was, how unjust? And it was. Remember how, remember that God, we said, is sovereign. He's authoritative over honor and reward. Who gets what and when? He's sovereign over that. So sure, Mordecai deserved, he deserved to be rewarded and honored for saving the king. But look, it was God's providence that determined the time and place for that reward and honor to be bestowed upon him. Mordecai didn't need the recognition for what he did saving the king back then, six or seven years ago. He didn't need it then. He needs it today. He needs it today. And that's, that's when God decides to give it. Because God is sovereign. He is providential. Here's the big idea that needs to be strung out. The one big point over all of today's sermon, and it's this. It's this. We need. Here's, don't question God's providence. Assume it. Don't question God's providence. You need to assume it. You need to live your life in a place, in a stance, in a posture, continuous posture, where you are assuming that God is at work. He is sovereign. He is at work. He is perfectly wise, perfectly good. He does no injustice to anyone, and he loves his people. Don't question the providence of this kind of God. You need to assume the providence of that kind of God. So let's look at verse 4. So the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. Remember, he, he's already, he's kind of jumping the gun. He's, he's built like a 70-foot, seven-story tall gallows. Now, it could be literally like an old like west-like rope and hanging, right? That's the language that the ESV, at least for me and my, my, my Bible, gives us. But back then, that wasn't a normal way of execution. This would have likely been either uh, a kind of a precursor to like a cross to crucifixion, or it would have just been a 70-foot-long stake that Mordecai then would have been impaled on vertically for him to die very painfully in front of everyone. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman has shown up to ask, hey, I've built these gallows. I, I, got, I got someone in mind for this one. I'd like, I'd like your permission just to make sure that I'm okay to kill this guy, Mordecai. Now, listen, you all see this, right? Haman is having a great life right now. Not for long. He's been promoted to vice president. He has access to the king. Everyone knows him. Everyone, well, almost everyone, bows to him. He's getting influential and powerful and wealthy. The king has agreed to destroy the people his, of his great enemy, Mordecai. All the Jews are as good as dead. He had an exclusive dinner with the king and the queen last night, and he's got another one on his Google calendar for tonight. Things are going great, and he's got an early start to the day. He's up at the crack of dawn to meet the king. He's got the gallows ready and finished. He wants Mordecai dead by lunchtime. He's got his pitch all planned out, and there's no stopping him. All, all Haman can do is roll double sixes. Every hand he gets dealt is pocket aces, face cards, right? He just can't lose. Mordecai, by the way, whether he knows it or not, Mordecai in this moment this morning, Mordecai needs a turnaround. He needs a big reversal, doesn't he? Esther is still asleep in bed. She's getting rest right now. 
She's, got, she's resting up for tonight because tonight's the big night when she's planning on exposing Haman and his plot to kill her and her people. But Haman's up early, and now he's up about to enter the presence of the king. He's going to beat her to the punch. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even know what's happening. Esther and Mordecai and the Jews are now in, the dark, in their darkest, most dangerous, sensitive moment for this entire story. This is like essentially a pivot point in the whole book, the whole narrative. They really need a reversal. And Mordecai and Esther aren't there for it. They're asleep. They don't know the moment they are facing as, more, as Haman is about to enter into the king's presence and ask for Mordecai to die by lunchtime. Who's not asleep? God. God. They really need a reverse. By, by the, what would you and I do here? Like if we were writing the story, if we had the sovereign providence to, to like determine what's going to happen, right? We need a turnaround. This is where we have the turnaround, right? Maybe we like Mordecai is woken up by an angel of the Lord and like, <sighs> splashes down some coffee and storms into the king's palace uninvited, right? But the king grants him favor and he says, that guy's a real jerk. He's a butthole. Your wife is a Jew. You didn't know it. I'm a Jew. He wants to kill her and me and all these Jews. He's been lying to you. He's a snake in the playground, bro. You know, right? And here's the proof, right? And all the servants are like, yeah, none of us like Haman. He's a jerk, right? That we would have done that. Like, there would have been like, you can't handle the truth moment if we were writing it. Maybe, maybe, maybe an angel of the Lord shows up in a, in a in a floating, flaming scroll, enlightening Ahasuerus on his throne, telling him the truth about Haman, revealing this evil plot, and all of a sudden giving Ahasuerus a, a, a change of heart, converting him to a Christian right then. That's what we would have done. That's the kind of turnaround that we would have possibly done. God could have done any of those things, but here, here, listen. Here, God does what God normally does. God is doing what God normally does. I'm, a, I'm what's called charismatic. I believe that God didn't just used to do miraculous signs and wonders and perform them himself and through his people. I believe that he still does that. Okay? I, stu still, I believe that God still gives human beings, his people, the gift of prophecy and of miraculous healing, miraculous provision, even even something called speaking in tongues, okay? And I see no reason for the Holy Spirit to have decided to stop acting in power like that because Satan clearly hasn't decided to stop acting in his power, okay? All I'm saying is, here in this moment, God does what God normally does. He's the miraculous God who meets us in the mundane. That's his general, common, regular, normal practice. He's generally, commonly, regularly, normally working in and through normal, mundane, boring, regular, unspectacular people and circumstances. He does that way more than using apparent supernatural miracles. Miracles are, miracles are special. That's why we call them miracles and not Tuesdays. They don't just happen all the time. Here comes God's reversal through something absolutely boring and non-spectacular. And yet it, it is incredible. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
Mm, Haman said to himself, mm, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. God is sovereign. Amen? Can't hear you. God is sovereign. Amen? God is providential. Amen? God's hilarious. Amen? God is hilarious. Haman doesn't know that the king's been up all night. But if he knew the king was up all night, what would he have legitimately assumed the king had been doing? Drinking MD 2020, watching Supernatural all night on Netflix and hanging out with the prostitutes in his harem. Right? But that's not what the king was doing. Of all nights that the king would normally be doing that, weirdly, strangely enough, for the first time ever, King Hasuerus was all, all night reading. Reading. So when the king asks what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, of course Haman thinks he's, he's asking about moi. Oh boy, do I have some great ideas on this man's behalf. You have really nice robes. You have royal robes. The guy you want to honor should get to wear ro royal robes. You need to understand something here. Haman is going for broke. Because in this Persian time and culture, for the king to bestow upon you the gift of one of his own royal robes was just about as close to being adopted by the king into the royal family as you could get. He's saying, king, I want you to make me your adopted little brother. I'm the vice president. I want you to make me family now. That's what he says. Bring me into the family. And you should give this guy one of your best horses. Oh, 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 and a crown, and a crown. Maybe a tiara, but a crown, anything, just something sparkly, something great, something awesome. One of your good crowns. Put one of those on this guy's head and then give him a parade, right? No floats, no marching bands, no Snoopy or, or Spider-Man, like inflatable balloons. Just, just mm, this guy on a horse all by himself, a one-man parade, and your heralds are just going, this is the guy who the king loves. This is what it looks like to be a winner, y'all. Everyone bow down to Haman, the winner. And now here you see the reversal. It's plain as day. The reversal's coming. Guess what? Haman doesn't see that reversal coming. He doesn't see it coming. And guess what else? You and I almost never see the reversal coming in our own lives either, do we? We need the great reversals. We need a series of lesser reversals in our lives. God's protection, God's provision, God's healing, God's changing of someone's heart or mind, your heart or mind, right? And it's what we pray for because we can't see how it's going to show up. But we pray to the one who we know makes those reversals show up, right? And it's a, it's a grand reversal. I've been, by the way, I've been in Haman's shoes. I don't know about you guys. I've been in Haman's shoes. Okay, so I'm like this. All right. In high school, I was the drum, drum major of my marching band for three years. I was, the, I was the drum major of my marching band. I was hot stuff, right? I was, the, I was the greatest drum major my school had ever seen, probably still has ever seen, okay? Like, uh, no, I, my mom told me, okay? 
So, so after, after one game, uh, senior year, senior year, uh, I got in the car with some band friends of mine to go to Chick-fil-A after the game, late at night, right? So we're in the car, and there is a girl that I thought was so incredibly cute, right? She went to my school, but I, I, I didn't know if she knew me. We had never really talked, but she was sitting in the front seat, and she was so cute, and I really wanted her to notice me. I wanted to see if I could ask her out. So I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm like, I mean, I had a great game. I like a little great halftime joke, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm, and so we're talking, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to throw my like, humor, my funny stories out. And, and she turns around, she goes, hey, aren't you? I'm like, Matt Ford, drum major, Mount Zion High School marching band, Red Regiment, drum major. Aren't you? Yes, Matt Ford. Right now, almost six feet tall, but on the podium, I'm 11 feet tall. I'm a miracle worker. Do you see what I've done with this band? Aren't you? Yes, Matt Ford, legend, legend in my own backyard, right? Matt Ford, aren't you Matt Ford's little brother? You all remember the 70s where, like, they had this don't litter and don't pollute commercial for public awareness, and they had, like, this Native American at the end. Someone throws a bubblegum wrapper, and all of a sudden the Native American chief just looks at the camera, and there's like one single tear. That was me. <laughs> a reversal, right? Pride comes before the fall. God is sovereign, he's providential, and he has a great sense of humor. What happens? Verse 10. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I love your ideas. This is why I made you vice president. Haman, that's great. Man, what a benefits package you came up with. I'm going to put you in charge of HR. It's a great. Don't forget to do anything that you just said. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, it's, it's Haman's job to be the herald. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Blech. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, rightly in shame. This is where someone plays that internet clip of the kids at the rap battle, and the one kid totally owns the other kids, and kid, and like all the other kids, like oh, and he's just like mm, leans back, and one other kid like runs in front of the kids, like oh, right, oh, all the angels are watching this up in heaven, and they're like oh, they lose their mind, they're running around like like tearing off their robes, like they're shirtless, like oh God, what did you just do, oh, right, they're just like looking down from heaven at Haman where he can't hear them, but they're going go get wrecked, son, come on, right, oh. It's a great moment. Mordecai was as good as dead. The vice president, the king's drinking buddy, his closest advisor, was about to ask for and get permission to kill him. Mordecai was supposed to get stripped naked, dragged through the streets, and then lifted high up onto some gallows and killed for everyone to see. Haman's heralds were supposed to be shouting in front of the whole city, hey, this is what a loser looks like. This is what happens when you offend and cross Haman, the great and the powerful. Instead, it's a reversal. Like that, Mordecai is now clothed in the king's royal robes. He's placed on the king's horse. He's given one of the king's crowns, and he's even given the king's favor and honor before everyone. He's practically been adopted into the king's family. Everything Haman wanted for himself, everything he was getting for himself, all of it is now Mordecai's. 
everything Satan wants for himself. Everything he wants to keep from God and his people. God is going to use Satan, as he has Haman, to grant those things to his own sons and to his people. This is why a Christian can lose anything, can be stripped of anything, can be sinned against, stolen from, dishonored, rejected, made fun of, and even killed. And the very thing that Satan and God's enemies want to take from God and his people, God is going to use them and their sins in his providential plan to give all things to his son and to his co-inheritors, the church. This is why a Christian can lose anything. This is why that, that's how we can endure any and all suffering. Because we have a God who's providential. We need to stop questioning his providence. We need, we need to start assuming God's providence. Who made it happen? Haman. Haman did it. Right? He, he literally went to punch Mordecai, and somehow his fist landed right in his own face. Right? Like if, a, if a dude can kick himself in his own junk, I mean, that's what Haman just did. He stepped on the rake and pow, ah! He can't blame the rake. He can't blame anyone else. Like, he did it. Haman did it because God decided it. Haman did it because God decided it. Listen, for, for a moment, the way I said that, I want to remember, we've been kind of, throughout the sermon series, kind of trying to discuss the relationship between God's sovereign promises and human will, human choice. That's, that's, a, that's a really controversial and kind of tricky thing to suss out. If God's sovereign, like, then do we make real choices? We're, this is how we're saying it just for now. Haman did what Haman wanted to do. Haman really did what Haman really wanted to do. God didn't have to make Haman want to do and choose these things. There's not a switch of a good guy, Haman, that guy goes, no, 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 I have a sovereign plan. You got to be bad. No, that... That switch was already set to bad. If God, is, if God is moving any switch, it's to anyone he's going to come and give them a new birth and give them a new heart, give them a new personhood and save them and forgive them their sins, right? The only people who get the lever switch is the people who become Christians, right? But the, but the switch is already set over on, on, on Haman. God has appointed for Haman to do what Haman wants to do, and that's what he did. And God also did what God wanted to do. The difference is only one of those people is sovereign. Only one of those people has ultimate authority. So this would be where one could look at all these events that led up to this and say, wow, what a fortunate series of events. What a coincidence. Coincidence, coincidence is just the non-Christian word for God's providence. Coincidence is just the non-Christian's word for God's providence. From the beginning, Esther and Mordecai would have rightly been asking, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? What's happening? Help me see. Help me know. Show me. Tell me. Tell me, God, like, what is going on? Why are you doing this? Why did you, God, why did you let our people get conquered and killed and exiled? God, why did you let our kingdom fall? Why did you let my parents die, God? Why didn't you give me a wife, Mordecai would have asked. Why can't I have kids of my own? Why are you letting wicked men like King Aswaris rule? God, why did you let him take my adopted daughter away to be his queen? He's a scumbag. God, 
Why are you letting such evil, proud men like Haman prosper? Why are you letting the whole kingdom prepare to kill me and my people, God, your people? What are you doing? When will you move? When will you act? Don't question God's providence. Assume it. Now, I want you to understand, all those questions, those are perfectly good and legitimate questions to ask. It's not wrong to ask God questions, okay? You, you ought to. You need to ask God those sorts of questions. But what is a sin, what is a sign of little to no faith is to question God rather than asking questions. What's that mean? To ask God a question because I need help and I want you to help me understand, and I'm going to submit to and trust whatever you will reveal to me, whether it's nothing or everything. But I'm just coming to you because you're the only one I know I can trust to tell me the truth. I need my help from you. That's asking God a question. That is righteous and faith-filled. Okay? To question God is to ask those same questions, and from a posture in which you've already got your own answer to your questions, regardless of what God might say. And that answer is, doesn't matter. There's not a good enough reason. That wasn't a good reason for you to have killed my parents or let our nation fall or to let her run away and desert me and to let my kids become wayward or for that car to be filled with a drunk driver who didn't stop and they did plow. You, you should have stopped that one. There's not a good, good enough reason why you let it be cancer. So I'm asking, but I don't care what you say. I already have my answer. You're wrong. You're unjust. You're unfair. You're untrustworthy. That's questioning God and his providence. Do we have really good reasons to feel worry and concern and pressure and sadness and fear in our world that we live in in our lives today? Do we? Yeah. Yeah, we have legitimate good reasons to experience traumatic, negative, scary, sad feelings, right? Do we have an even better reason to pray and ask God to act? Yes. We have every good reason to ask God to speak to us, to show us, to tell us, to reveal to us, to help us, to provide for us, to protect us, to deliver us, to act on our behalf, to grant us a great reversal. Because the historical redemptive narrative, this big overarching universe and all times past present and future outplay of the gospel that's the reason we have for asking god those questions in prayer as we assume his providence you can you can ask some questions as you assume his providence i assume you're providential i assume you have a reason i assume you have a plan i assume it's higher and better and wiser and more perfect than what i would come up with anyone would come up with so i'm just simply coming to you with questions I want to participate in your providence. I don't want to, I don't want to disobey, I want to be in step with you, so help me understand. Anything you would tell me, anything you reveal to me, I just want to know so I can go with you. Right? We pray because God is sovereign, because he is providential, because he's shown it and proven it time and time again. We see revealed in this book already the gospel, the gospel's already being dramatized right before our eyes. Let's take a look at the threads of the historical redemptive narrative, the gospel, already showing up in these threads in the book of Esther. The Jews have a great enemy in Haman, an enemy who hates them, and in his haughty arrogance, he'll do anything to kill them and raise himself up. 
the Jews have a sacrificial savior in Esther. She was born a nobody, and later she's crowned in royalty, and she's willing to die to save her people. The Jews are under a death sentence, and there's no breaking or reversing or unwriting the king's law. The Jews have a representative, and he's, appoint, he's been appointed to die. He's been appointed by the one who has power, the great enemy. He's been appointed to be stripped naked, paraded through the streets, and lifted up to die in humiliation. Just see the gospel threads already showing up in a book that doesn't mention God at all by name. The gospel shows us Jesus Christ in all of these providentially appointed things. So we have a great enemy who hates Jesus and his people. He'll do anything with all of his power, all of his arrogance, all of his craftiness. He'll do anything to see to it that Jesus' people suffer, become confused, get deceived, turn away from Christ, die. Anything he can do to harm and diminish and offend Jesus and God's people. We have a great enemy. We have a sacrificial savior in Jesus. And he was born a nobody. And he died notoriously with a mocking sign over his head on the cross that says, here's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They were making fun of his royalty. And he died to save his people. And we, listen, we, right now, us, today, we are under the, illegi- we are under the legitimate legal death sentence of our sin. And there is no breaking or reversing or unwriting of God's law. The wages of sin is death. That's what every human being is born into. And we have a representative appointed to die. The one who accomplishes the great reversal so that we are no longer under the king's irreversible, indelible, irrevocable law. We have a representative who's appointed to die. It's Jesus. And he deserves the royal robe. He deserves the royal crown. He deserves to ride on the royal horse. He deserves the honoring parade and to be lifted up on a throne. That's what he deserves. And he gets what Mordecai was about to get. Jesus gets what Mordecai was about to get. He gets all that Mordecai and we deserve to get. He rides a donkey, not a horse. He doesn't get royal robes. He's stripped naked and humiliated. He's crowned with thorns. And he is lifted up, but he's lifted up on the gallows, on the cross, before all the people. And what is proclaimed is, what a loser, what a humiliation, what a shame, what a sinner. So that you and I and Mordecai can find grace and favor and life before the king. And we're rescued from the death sentence. The gospel assures us that we can assume God's providence and that we can stop questioning God's providence. God is at work whether we can see how and when or not whether we can understand what he's doing and where he's headed and how he's going to untie the knots that are made of millions and trillions of teeny, tiny, little, tight-knitted threads and ropes and strings. Jesus is the God who brings about the great ultimate reversal, the impossible of all impossible reversals. He doesn't promise that you'll see your reversal coming. There's nowhere in here that God says, the time and the appointment of your healing, of your of your reconciliation of your forgiveness of my provision of my protection there's no promises of oh you'll see it coming i'll tell you when where and how so you can just obey me you're going to need to understand me understand what i'm doing in order to be able to go along with me in the plan in fact quite the opposite we're never promised that we will see the reversal on its way but we are promised that we will see the reversal 
we will see each and every great reversal that God intends to grant. We will see it. You won't see Jesus coming, but you will see his return. Whether it's here when he interrupts the sermon right now. I've been trying that lately. You know. <laughs> we'll see it from this side or we'll see it from the other side where we're behind him coming out of the clouds with resurrected bodies for the great and final defeat of Satan. And we'll be behind him, thank God, because we'll be, we won't see his flashing, furious eyes that he has to give the day of death to Satan. We'll be behind him, following him. But we will see his return. We have all the proof that we need in order to sit and stay with Jesus in the midst of our very difficult and very hard and very frightening and very threatening and very suffering-filled days. We have every, all the proof we need in order to sit and stay with him because the great reversal has been accomplished, greater than the one that you see in the book of Esther. And if that's been accomplished, then God's word has something to say about that. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, God's word says, what then are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who's against, who can be against us? Well, Satan can be against you. And the question stands, who can be against you? Well, Satan. People who hate Christians. Well, governments or, or this person or that person or that, that nation or that religion. And God's still going to go, all right, okay, and so who can stand against you if, if God is for you? If I'm for you, who can actually be against you in a legitimate way, in a real dangerous way? He, and here's his proof, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The great and impossible great reversal has already been accomplished. All other reversals God's people need are less than and under that. And he's already done the hardest thing which we know, the gospel. So we can assume, we, we now have everything we need in order to assume God's providence and live in it rather than live in doubt and questioning it. What is it, by, by the way, what does it look like? What does it look like to assume God's providence? Are you guys ready for a big surprise? It's a good old gospel two-step. Trust and obey. Trust and obey, put it on a t-shirt, okay? I, you probably come. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make up. I'm gonna make up the song on the fly. All right, just improv. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. No, that's already been written. We already got a song for it. Trust and obey. Yeah, I know, but I need something more sophisticated, like something like get me past Sunday school. Most of us, all of us, don't need to graduate from Sunday school, right? Who gets into the kingdom of God? People who are childlike, not childish, but childlike. People go, I don't need anything more sophisticated than that, right? I still need to be writing with crayons, okay? I'm going to trust and obey. That's what my Christian life looks like. That's what it looks like to live under and in God's providence. That's what it looks like to assume God's providence, even when you have questions. No matter and regardless of what I do understand, of what I do see coming, what I think could go badly, what I think could go well, what I want to do, what they think they're going to do, regardless of any of that, I still end up going, he's sovereign, he's providential, he is good, he is just, he is faithful, he is loving, and he loves me. I belong to him. So who can be against me? I'll 
die. And I'm with him. And now I figure out where my, where my seat is when he returns. I know I'm behind him, right? What does it look like to assume God's providence, to trust and obey? That's how, listen, that's how you participate in God's providence. If you want to know what God's will is for your life so that you can participate and walk in step with God, you can always, you'll always, every, every single one of us can walk in God's providential will for your life right now, today. And the requirement for you to do so is to not know. The requirement for, for you to be able to do that is not for you to be able to know or understand and see what's coming. You just need to know and understand and see and trust what's already come, who's already come, what has already been done over and over and over again by this God. You trust and obey him. You want to participate in God's providence? Obey him. Sin is how we provoke God's providence. Sin is how we provoke God's providence. We've already covered this. God perfectly uses sin. He perfectly uses employees. Sinners and sin, Christians and our sin. He uses our sin and screw-ups perfectly in his plan. But over and over and over again, the Bible shows us that sin, distrusting God, disobeying God, doing and saying what we think is right in our own eyes, especially when things are going haywire, when the marriage is a wreck, when the finances are a wreck, when the kids are wayward, when you don't know what to do, when all hell's breaking loose in our life, we need a reversal, I need a turnaround, I need something to happen, and I don't see God acting. I don't understand why he's doing this. I don't know what he's going to do. So what's my temptation? It's to do what seems right in my own eyes, to take matters into my own hands, and therefore now I'm tempted to disobey what God says in his path of life for me. And in that moment, I become like Haman, and I provoke the providence of God. And all the good that I'm seeking for myself, God uses my sin to provoke his providence. And I, I may very well find myself more and more and more in the same seat, in the same spot as Haman. Trusting and obeying God is how you participate in his providence. And sin is how we provoke God's providence. And by God's grace... He calls us to trust and obey him, and we have that way. We close with the prophetic words of Haman's wife, Zeresh. God, give, God, gives, God gives Haman's wife, Zeresh, a prophetic word as she sends him off to what will be Haman's last meal. Next week will be part two. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, if he is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And that'll take us next week into part two.